science enthusiasts. I'm your host, Jason Zakowski. I'm a high school chemistry teacher, but you probably know our dogs, Bunsen and Beaker. They're the science dogs on social media. This show takes what's best from their account, the curiosity and fun found there, and swirls it into podcast form. Every week, we're going to take some deep dive into an area of science and look at the research that's going on with our pets. We'll also have an expert guest who will enthrall you with their area of knowledge. This is the Science Podcast. Hello, everybody. We hope you're happy and healthy out there. Welcome back to another episode of the Science Podcast. For those of you who are wondering, Bunsen is doing great. He's totally recovered from the porcupine quills. He still is in his cone because he has that incision on his shoulder where they had to go in and get a couple more quills out. Um, we've been finding quills in him all of this week. The poor guy, he's so stoic. We'll be petting him and something's pokey. And then we'll just like, oh man, we got to get this out of his body. But he's been a good boy about that. A lot of people are concerned that there may be quills in his body working their way towards a vital organ. And the answer to that is very, very low chance. It's possible. Um, but x-rays or ultrasounds may not pick those up. So we'll just have to hope for the best. And where the quills were in his body aren't really around his um, his chest. They're in his shoulder and his face. All right. Well, what's on the show this week? In Science News, we're going to talk about the missions going to Venus. Very exciting. A lot of the science folks on Twitter were losing their mind about it. So what's going on there? In Pet Science, we're going to talk about a study about dogs and paws and self-awareness, which is kind of interesting. Our expert guest this week is Jade Simon, who is a paleontologist, but also has a service dog. So we're going to talk about both of those. Great interview. Hey dogs, did you know that one day on Venus lasts about 5,800 Earth hours? So that's roughly about the same as a Monday. Hello! <laughs> okay, that was good. Yeah, some Mondays are terrible. All right, on with the show. Because there's no time like science time. This week in science news, let's talk about NASA's going back to Venus. Out of nowhere, all of the space science people on, on Twitter were furiously tweeting, what's going on? What's happening? And then and then they're like, we're going back to Venus. And I'm like, what is happening? I was totally out of the loop. <laughs> I didn't know there was some big announcement being made about the next NASA missions. And um, they actually chose two separate missions to Venus. So Venus, if you are need a little bit of catching up, is uh, is Earth's evil twin. And NASA's next missions are called Da Vinci Plus and Veritas. So why Venus? Well, what's the importance of these two missions? They're going to be looking at two things. Understanding how Venus became this totally inhospitable planet and why Earth didn't share its fate and figuring out more about what makes Venus tick today and if it was habitable in the past. NASA doesn't have an infinite budget, so the missions have to kind of like put their proposals forward. And uh, the, these two NASA Venus missions beat out uh, two other missions that would have gone to Triton, a moon of Saturn, and Io, a moon of Jupiter. I love talking about Venus with my students. Um, because Venus, people don't know a lot about it, even though that it's it's usually the brightest thing in the night sky. And it's the planet that's closest in size to the Earth. It's really similar to the Earth in size. But that's kind of where <laughs> the similarities end. While it's a rocky planet, it is basically a uh, hellish landscaped uh, murder planet. Well, evidence in the past, and this is 
where I'm a little fuzzy because it's like nebulous evidence. There's evidence to suggest that Venus was covered with oceans and could have been habitable in the past. It's now scorching hot today. Like so hot, hotter than you could even imagine. The surface of Venus is close to 900 degrees Fahrenheit or 465 degrees Celsius. That is hot enough to melt lead. And not only is it so incredibly hot, the choking atmosphere of Venus is uh, around 93 bars of pressure, which is similar to being 3,000 feet under sea level. So not only do we have this incredible temperature and this destructive pressure, it also has sulfuric acid clouds that rain sulfuric acid. That's one spicy planet. No spacecraft has lasted more than two hours on the surface of Venus, and NASA hasn't been back to Venus in over 30 years. So there's a lot that is very mysterious about this planet. Da Vinci Plus is going to be the first mission in decades to send a probe to the planet's surface. The spacecraft, the pictures of it, it's going to go down with like a parachute system, and it's a ball about a meter across. So not super huge. And remember, the, the atmosphere on Venus is really thick, so they don't need all of the landing gear that the Martian rovers needed because the Martian ro uh, rovers uh, just kind of blasted through Mars's thin atmosphere. The Venus atmosphere acts like a cushion as these things come down. And over the course of an hour, as the, the, the ball uh, descends to the surface of Venus, this Da Vinci Plus probe is going to be taking tons of measurements and pictures and it will probably provide, as long as it all goes well and it doesn't get eaten alive, they're building it pretty ruggedly. Um, it's going to provide the highest resolution pictures of the Venus surface we've ever seen in our lives. These observations and these the data that it's going to take as it, as it falls to the surface is going to help scientists to figure out how Venus has changed over time. Also, what were things like with volcanoes? Are there volcanoes now even? Were there volcanoes in the past? What specific readings does it have now? Was the planet potentially habitable in the past? The data will also help our Earth scientists when they're looking at planets with, for example, the Webb telescope or Hubble, make predictions about other planets that may be these hothouse planets. Veritas, that's going to be an orbit uh, probe. So it's going to be orbiting Venus, studying the planet's surface. And it will also be learning about why, or, you know, Venus is so different than Earth and maybe what caused Venus to be so different than Earth. It's going to be using radar and, and making 3D maps of, of all of the surface of Venus and looking to see if there's some plate tectonics and mapping active volcanoes. Obviously, this mission is super important. The second one to plot potential landing spots for future missions to Venus. These two missions are set to launch in 2028 and 2030. So relatively soon, um, I mean, within the decade. For a lot of scientists, Venus is just as exciting as Mars because Venus has a lot of things we don't know about it, whereas we've mapped a whole bunch of the Martian uh, landscape because we have probes that have, uh, you know, satellites that have been orbiting that planet. We have rovers on the ground taking pictures. Venus is a big mystery. The other thing that they're hoping to answer definitively, there's like that controversial study um, about the clouds of Venus and this phosphine gas, where there are microbes high in the clouds living. Um, these two probes will answer that definitively. So, well, so far we're not, we're striking out for life on Mars. 
this is a potential spot for life in our solar system, in the clouds of Venus or crazy weirdo organisms on the surface. Who knows? That's science news for this week. This week in pet science, we're going to talk about dogs and the paws. <laughs> and this study is all about the self-awareness that dogs have. So body awareness is an ability that a lot of animals we associate high intelligence with have. It's like a self-representation or a self-awareness of who you are. Humans have this at a very young age, like five months old. Babies can figure out like which one of their legs is their legs instead of a recording of somebody else's legs. It lets you know that you know that you are you. <laughs> um, and of course, with humans, this develops into some pretty complicated forms over time. Other research in the past you might have heard of is like the mirror mark where they put like a mark on a, the body of an animal and they like check themselves out in the mirror to see that, oh, that mark is on me. I am me. And that's a pretty famous test. Apes and, and elephants and dolphins and, and corvid birds are, are part of this list of animals that have uh, been definitively studied to have body awareness or self-awareness. And for the longest time, Dogs failed this miserably. Some dogs, when you hold them up to a mirror, they it means nothing to them. A mirror in Bunsen uh, is invisible. I don't know what he sees when he looks in a mirror. If he see, like he just ignores himself in the mirror. He ignores everything in a mirror. Beaker, when she was little, would bark at herself in the mirror, and now she ignores the mirror. So the mirror and dogs was a big failure. Some dogs, of course, react to a mirror. Uh, maybe you at home are like you have dogs like Bunsen and Beaker, which really don't pay the mirror any attention. So for the longest time, they're like, no, dogs have no self-awareness. We put a mark on them and they don't even know that they're in the mirror. So failure, they don't know self-awareness. Now, over time, we've learned that we can make self-awareness tests differently that work for the, that species of animal. In this study, they took like a, a basically a quote unquote bottoms up approach <laughs> to, to investigate if dogs have a, you know, some level of self-representation. The lead author of the study, Pongratz, is quoted as saying, dogs are intelligent and large. They're fast-moving creatures and they move in a complex environment. So you'd think that they'd be, have to know where their body ends and the world begins so they don't constantly crash into things. Dogs are pretty good at not crashing into stuff compared to humans. I stub my toes all the time. I don't think I've never seen Bunsen or Beaker stub their toe. Like they walk into stuff, especially Bunsen. He's not really agile in small spaces. <laughs> so what did this study do? Well, okay. It was a pretty ingenious test. They, they had a mat on the mat was a thing, some kind of toy. And the dog's task was to pick up the toy and bring it to their owner. So Bunsen would not be good at this because he doesn't like to play fetch. Uh, Beaker would be good at this, but she'd probably try to destroy the toy. Anyways, the thing that was interesting about the study was the toy was attached to the mat. So as the dog tried to pick up the toy, they quickly realized that it was attached to something else. And because they were standing on the mat, it was impossible to pick up the toy. Very quickly, the dog moved all of their body off of the mat except their mouth to pick up the toy. Then they just hauled the toy and the mat to the owner problem solved. <laughs> this is low level self-awareness to know that their body was impeding the task 
that their paws were their own paws, that their body was their own body. When the toy was attached to the ground, the dogs were a little bit more bamboozled about how to do that because basically they knew their all of their body was always touching the ground. So it was really interesting that they moved quickly off the mat, which they knew was not attached to the ground as well. So some problem solving right there. These studies were published in scientific reports, and it's one of the first studies with dogs to confirm a low level of self-awareness. The team is hoping to continue investigating the self-representation abilities of dogs in future studies. That's Pet Science for this week. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Science Podcast this week. The Science Podcast is always going to be free to download, but if you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. The first one is sign up on our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash BunsenBurner. There's multiple tiers of support. We have a ton of fun with the patron group. You get to be on the podcast. You get postcards from Bunsen and Beaker. You get swag. You get early pictures. You get a whole bunch of awesome stuff. So check it out. The lowest tier is only five bucks a month. The other way you could support the show is checking out our merch shop. Our merch shop is hilarious. It's got all these adorable cartoons of Bunsen and Beaker. We keep producing more. I just want to thank the people that have supported the show that way. We're really, really proud of our merch shop because the the merch, the clothes, is really high quality. The colors are vibrant, and um, we come up with some really fun designs all the time. So check it out. That's at BunsenBurnerBMD.com. Thanks, everybody. On to the interview. It's time for Ask an Expert on the Science Podcast, and I have Jade Simon, PhD candidate, with me today. How are you doing today, Jade? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> You've got me. Uh, this is a nice little break. I was just marking a bunch of stuff with my day job. So I get to take a little break and talk some science, which is an amazing break during the day. <laughs> Excellent. Um, where are you calling into the science podcast from? Uh, so I'm in Toronto, where I work at the Royal Ontario Museum and am doing my PhD at the University of Toronto. Okay, cool. Are you in Canada for school or are you like a Canadian in Canada for school? I am here for my PhD. I'm from the US and I moved okay. up here in 2016 for my PhD. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. So you've been, do you go back and forth uh, from here to home or, or were you trapped because of coronavirus? I used, yep, I used to go back and forth, but not so much these days. I haven't been back home for over about a year and a half because we were due to go home right before the lockdown happened last March. Mm. Are yeah. you and your family doing okay with COVID though? We are. Thankfully, everyone is doing okay. Some of my family did actually get COVID, but they recovered okay and are still doing well. Oh, that's good to hear. Let's talk a little bit about your education and why you're on the podcast. Um, you, I mentioned you're a PhD candidate and you mentioned you're studying in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Where are you and what are you doing with your education? Where are you at in your education right now? So I am in kind of the last year of my PhD, although COVID has sort of um, made that a little more difficult, but I'm finishing up. I am a candidate, so I've passed my candidacy exams, and now all I have to do is write up the dissertation um, (laughs) and get that submitted and defended. Um, Yeah, but I did my master's degree in earth sciences and paleontology in Montana, and an undergraduate degree in geology in West Virginia, which is where I'm from. Okay. All right. 
yeah, Montana seems like a nice place to to study the the formation of the earth. <laughs> it is. It's excellent. There's a lot of dinosaurs in Montana and a lot of dinosaur eggs, which is what I studied at that point. Oh, yeah. We're, I hope we get into that a little later. Yeah. Um. So you are like a year, within a year of being done, a year or two or, or about a year? The hope is a year, uh, kind of COVID dependent. Um, mm. It's been difficult to get into the lab to do the last bits of data uh, collection for my dissertation. So once I can get that figured out, I've got about a year left to write up and finish. And are you hoping to stay in paleontology? Is that or geology or like where's your where's your future after you you have your dissertation done? <laughs> um, yeah, I would love to stay in paleontology. I'd like to keep researching dinosaurs, and I would love to be um, an educator. I would really like to teach at a college. Um, that is one of my big passions, actually. Oh, and, cool. Yeah. One of the ways that I actually learned about you and your podcast. Oh, <laughs> from from somebody in a college or university? Uh, no, from just like science education and outreach. Is oh. a really, yeah, a really big um, part of what I'm trying to do. And yeah. Uh, using Bunsen and Beaker as science communicators. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what got you interested in geology slash paleontology as a young person? That's a great question. Um, growing up in West Virginia, I didn't really get all that excited about dinosaurs because that wasn't something that was around me there. Um, the rocks are the wrong age for that. They're much older. But I did end up playing in the dirt quite a lot. I was an outdoor kid. I was always outside. And my grandfather actually was really interested in archaeology and in geology in general. So he would show me different rocks and tell me all about them. And he would kind of give me little mini quizzes where he'd ask me what kind of fossil I thought it was in the rock. And that really sparked that interest for me. And it just grew from there. And in university, I decided to study uh, geology. And one of my professors was a paleontologist. And that kind of uh, dawned on me that you could actually do that as a career. <laughs> I didn't realize that was an option. <laughs> so as soon as I met that professor, it kind of took off from there. I love it. Did your grandfather uh, by chance have a hat and a whip? He <laughs> was like really fond of the floppy hat, but not so much a whip. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, for people that didn't get my reference, uh, that's uh, that's uh, Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> it was the, your professor that got you interested in, in paleontology. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and your, I guess Virginia's, uh, the rock formations you said was, it was too young and uh, like, did you got to do, you got to work in Montana. Um, one of the interesting things is where like where I'm from in the world in Alberta, uh, we have insane amounts of dinosaur stuff in Southern Alberta. Like it's just crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. I actually dig in Alberta almost every summer since I've started working with, uh, the University of Toronto and Royal Ontario Museum. All right. Let's talk your dinosaurs because that's uh, that's a passion of yours. And and some of the things you, you got to study and are studying is really interesting. One of the things you mentioned in your bio is uh, ovoraptors or ovoraptors. Am I saying that right? <laughs> yeah, it's ovoraptors. Ovoraptors. Yeah. Okay. What, what are they? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great question. Um, ovoraptors are really weird dinosaurs. So they're closely related to the ancestors of birds. Um, so they're called Manoraptoran theropod dinosaurs is like the different categories you could give to them. 
Manoraptorans are the dinosaurs that are really closely related to birds. They're feathery. They look very bird-like. They are generally carnivorous and have like sharp teeth. And um, some of them even have really large feathers on their forearm. It kind of looks a little wing-like. So they're close to the origin of birds. Um, but oviraptors, most of them actually have no teeth at all. So they have a beak instead of teeth, except for a few of them. And they have sometimes a crest on their head. They're a pretty big range of sizes of them. Some are pretty small, like not much bigger than a turkey, but some are enormous, like nearly the size of a T-Rex. Um, and then a lot really? of them are, yeah, a lot of them are somewhere in the middle. There's only one that's really, really enormous, um, but that's a, a Giganoraptor. But usually they're kind of like a mid to small size and they're just fascinating. We actually don't know very much about their biology. Okay. So I have so many follow-up questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, number one, what, what got you hooked on the Oviraptor of all of the different dinosaurs? Like what got you hooked up with them? Um, so in my master's degree out in Montana, my project was actually to work on uh, dinosaur eggs and they happened to be Oviraptor eggs. And it was sort of a situation where I didn't really pick my project for myself. I was given a selection of projects that were all really interesting. Um, and I was glad for that because I was doing my master's. I didn't really have a lot of research questions yet. I was pretty new to thinking about research questions. Mm -hmm. So I picked the one that seemed the most interesting to me. And it was this project on eggs. And they are eggs of giant oviraptors, potentially as big as something like the Giganoraptor that I just mentioned um, from Idaho, actually. And it was through studying those eggs that I actually got really interested in the animals that would have laid them um, and all the questions. The more I would read about uh, their biology and what we know about them, the more I just realized they're a big puzzle. Almost everything about how they lived is sort of either controversial or not well understood. Oh, cool. Yeah. And and for some people that would frustrate them. Uh, <laughs> but for you, you're like, this is this is my jam. I'm gonna, I, I want to solve these puzzles. Oh, yeah. I love puzzles. Uh, I think that's one of the big draws for, for me with paleontology is it is just a giant puzzle because we can't observe the animals we study. It's a really unique branch of the biology or kind of geosciences. We can't actually see the thing that we're studying um, interact in real life with its environment. So we can't have to observe them yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't think we want to bring dinosaurs back. <laughs> Oof, no, no. We've got still got some kicking around birds. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Very good. Very good. So these oviraptors, did they, mm -hmm. did they live uh, like in a broad space? swath of time like throughout many different periods or were they confined to one um uh like time period of the earth yeah so the uh most oviraptors are well all oviraptors that that we have um specimens for are from the cretaceous um and usually it's sort of the mid to late uh so we have the early cretaceous and the late cretaceous Oviraptors are usually somewhere in the late early <laughs> Cretaceous through the end of the Cretaceous. So that's, you know, anywhere from um, maybe 120 million years ago all the way up through 66 million years ago at the end of the Cretaceous. So they lived for millions and millions of years. It's not like they're relatively short lived. 
Yeah, like most dinosaurs. Um, dinosaurs are actually a very, very successful group of animals, and and most of them were around for quite a long time. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? We like, <laughs> when you, st- I'm sure when you tell that to people, they're like, they're not so successful. They're not here anymore. But like the, but the amount of time they lived on Earth is just mind-boggling. It really is. It's an extremely large amount of time, um, and I think yeah, that's something that that we gloss over pretty often using dinosaur as sort of an analogy for something um, that doesn't work very well uh, or, you know, is old and outdated, but actually dinosaurs thrived for, for millions and millions of years and a group of them is still around today. So pretty successful. Cool. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, I don't have a lot of faith in humanity lasting that long. If <laughs> We got to change some stuff. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Your PhD work, what's that with now? So I am now uh, working on oviraptors themselves, not just their eggs. So I was studying how they may have reproduced by looking at their eggs. And now I'm looking at how different oviraptors grew. So I actually cut up their bones and look at the bone under the microscope and try to figure out how old the animals were when they died and how quickly they were growing so that we can kind of put together a picture of how those animals would have changed in their outward appearance, their outward anatomy from baby to adult. Um, Something that's really fascinating about dinosaurs is they all hatch at a very small size relative to the size of a lot of dinosaurs we kind of picture in our minds as adults. A lot of them are quite large, but even the biggest dinosaurs hatched from fairly small eggs and wouldn't have been much bigger than like a kind of a small cat when they hatched. Um, and that's like the big dinosaurs. So I'm interested in how the bodies of those animals would have changed from the time they hatched until they reached their kind of skeletal maturity. Um, and I'm really interested in how we can use that information to figure out if we are looking at new species in the fossil record when we find a new dinosaur, or if we're looking at a juvenile or an adult or a baby of a species we already know about. Oh, because their bone structure might be so different. Yeah, yeah, because we can only use the bones to figure out the relationships of the different species. And that can be difficult because some features on bones change as an animal grows up. Hmm. Yeah. Is that similar, the size to egg ratio with reptiles and birds today or is or dinosaurs special? Um, That's a good question. I think because dinosaurs had the potential to get so large, depending on the species, it's fairly unique. Um, For some dinosaurs that were smaller size, maybe similar to the size of a large reptile today, I don't think it would be that different of a ratio. uh, Reptiles today do hatch out of fairly small eggs compared to their body size. But dinosaurs, um, some species had the potential to get so, so large that it's really exaggerated. That's wild. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Obviously, uh, like, I, I, I don't know the answer to this, but I'm assuming you guys have, like, little baby dinosaurs, uh, fossils of, like, little teeny tiny ones that use, that grow really, really big. Absolutely, um, yeah. There's Myosaur is uh, a duck-billed dinosaur, and there's, there's a lot of embryonic and nestling-sized um, fossils for Myosaur. And the name actually means good mother lizard. So they've been found with like the nestlings, like nests full of babies. Aw. 
Yeah. <laughs> would uh would a little what was the big what was the big over raptor you called? Giganaraptor. Giganaraptor. Am I saying that? Gigana? I think so. I might be saying it wrong. <laughs> oh, I have no idea. You would think like all animals are kind of cute when they're little, like even little baby crocodiles are are mm-hmm. kind of cute, right? Yeah. Um one of those giant, like scary, gonna eat you in one bite dinosaurs they'd probably be adorable if they were the size of a cat almost yeah they were definitely adorable they had the similar patterns that we see in in baby animals now where the the eyes are really big and the face is pretty short compared to the rest of the the features on the face so yeah they have that like very cute look where they're and their legs are too long um they're pretty adorable (laughs) (laughs) when you look at the bones underneath the microscope Mm-hmm. Um, are you looking for like, I don't know if this is even the right bio- biological word, like growth plate, like you can see the the bone structure growing? Is that is that the idea? Yeah, we can actually look for things called lines of arrested growth or sometimes called growth marks. And those are actually lines that show a time when the animal's growth slowed down. So by looking at the the microstructure, the actual structure at the microscopic level of the bone, you can see periods where the animal was growing quickly or slowly. And as it slows down, it leaves a distinct mark in the bone. And then when it grows again for another season, it picks up in its growth. You see a distinct structure in the bone there and then another ring. It's a little bit like tree rings. It's pretty cool. So you can figure out about how many seasons of growth the animal has. And we generally equate that to years um, for simplicity. We do think it most likely corresponds with actual years. um, But that's kind of just what we go with is lines of arrested growth to help figure out the relative age of the animal. And there's all sorts of thing that, things that bone does as it grows. So we can also look at how mature the animal was, not just how old it was. So you can see based on the texture um, of the bone and the, the fibers that make up the bone, you can see if the animal is starting to reach skeletal maturity or not, or if it's still really in its fast growth phase. And then you could potentially get the lifespan, like how old the dinosaurs would live, give or take. Is that Yeah, we can figure out how old the individual specimens were when they died. And if you have lots of specimens of one species and you cut up a bunch of them, <laughs> which it can be a little hard to get permission to do. Um, <laughs> not everyone likes, uh, likes it when you want to cut up their fossils. But if you can get a large sample size, you can sort of estimate what the rough lifespan of a given species was. But it's important to remember we are only uh, finding a subset of the population in the fossil record. So it's, it's sort of a best estimate of their lifespan. Right. Some catastrophe could have swept away a whole bunch of them. And then that's your sample. Exactly. Um, uh, okay. So uh, I, I know this is going to be different for different species of dinosaur. I, I never even thought to think this, like how, how old the dinosaurs live? Like, do they, do you have a general idea for at least the oviraptors or some of them? That um, is an excellent question. So oviraptors actually have not had very much histology done on them. Okay, histology cool. is the like fancy word for what I'm doing. It's when you cut up a, uh, um, some kind of material and look at it under the microscope. It could be 
modern bone or muscle or eggshell. Um, so we do osteohistology, just bone histology. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. And there's, there hasn't been much done on overactors yet, which is one of the reasons I was really drawn to this project. Mm. Um, so what we've had so far, the specimens that have been sampled look like they're potentially in the early teens or the like 10 to 11 year range. But I think it's just very, very few specimens. So not a, mm. we don't have a good handle on that quite yet for oviraptors. Um, but there are other species like uh, tyrannosaurs have been um, studied quite a bit histologically recently and uh, also pachycephalosaurs and triceratops. Uh, that's interesting because if you have, look at the bir- some birds, I mean, parrots live forever. Mm-hmm. And other birds don't. And then you have some reptiles that have short lives and some live forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. You are a big advocate for accessibility in science. Um, could you chat to with us about why that is or what what your ideas are there? Sure. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I was actually diagnosed with a connective tissue disorder Um, And it is genetic, so I've had it my entire life, but it's become progressively worse to the point where it was really um, impacting my daily life. And as I I mentioned earlier, I had to take a medical leave actually from my program to work through some of the the health um, issues that were coming up and and see doctors quite a lot. Um, And this sort of opened my eyes to uh, the difficulties of being in a field science or really any any kind of academic field with uh, disabilities. And I'd like to say that I thought about it a lot before, but I, unfortunately, it had not really occurred to me until I was dealing with these significant health problems. Um, and that, that happens quite often, unfortunately. Um, so that got me really interested in, okay, how do we make science more accessible. Because when I was looking around at my community of of paleontologists, when I was getting diagnosed, I didn't see very many people who were at least open about being disabled. So I wasn't sure if there really were um, people in my field who were disabled. And that was really hard. Um, During my medical leave, I actually had to sit down and and ask myself, am I going to be able to do this as a profession because I don't see other disabled paleontologists, or at least that I know of. (laughs) Mm. Um, And that made me think, well, a lot of the times in my life when I've thought I didn't see people like me in the field that I wanted to do, it turned out they were there and that they had just been afraid to talk about it. So maybe if I talk about it, I'll meet other people who are also dealing with this because that's sort of been the case with other issues for me um, in paleontology or in, you know, in anything in life. I think when we start talking about things that are hard for us, we often hear from other people saying, hey, I'm dealing with that too. So I decided to be more open about it and, and public about what I was dealing with, hoping that um, that would help other people be able to see themselves in the field um, dealing with various health conditions. And that's exactly what happened. I I opened up about it and suddenly I was finding out about all sorts of other scientists and specifically paleontologists or earth scientists who were dealing with with difficult health conditions. 
Um, and I also happened to find um, a large disability community on Twitter around the same time. Um, this is really when like my advocacy journey began is, is finding a dis disability community and uh, specifically finding Joey Ramp and mm. uh, Service Dog Samson was really important. Um, that helped me see like a very public facing example of someone dealing with disability in science, in academia and willing to enthusiastically talk about it and advocate for not only her own right to be there and have accommodations, but for the rights of all disabled people to be in science. Um, so that's where it really started for me. And I've just been trying to figure out how I can implement that in my own life and help other people um, be in field sciences or science in general with their disabilities. Wow, it takes a lot of courage to to speak out when you don't know if the support is there. Um, I have a lot of respect for for Joey uh, just because I think she gets some she has gotten blowback her entire life from trying to have accommodations and have Samson with her. Um, yeah, she's just so brave. She's like, I don't care anymore. Like, come at me, bro. Yeah, it's, <laughs> but it's I, but I think it bothers anybody that's negative. It bothers you at some levels. So. Yeah, it's really hard. And honestly, I'm so so glad that that Joey is so open about those difficulties because it that actually really gave me the courage to to push back against um, you know some of the resistance that I was either feeling myself like. It, putting on myself or getting from other people. And so I, I actually have a service dog and uh, early on I was a little like nervous about advocating for my right to have a service dog in a lab setting or in a teaching setting. And, and yeah, uh, Joey's example really helped me like find the words and also her lab guidelines helped me have, you know, actual evidence I could bring to someone and say, look, like people do this and here's the guidelines. So there really shouldn't be a barrier here. Could I don't know if this is uh, too personal, um, Jade. Um, what does your disability center around? You said connective tissue. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, no worries. I hope that's not too personal. No, nothing too personal for for the. I talk about disability all the time. I'm pretty open about it. So. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. So my um, main disability is a connective tissue disorder. It's uh, in the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome uh, family of disorders. There's several different varieties of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, so I'm hypermobile spectrum disorder or hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos. Those are kind of two different uh, ways to talk about it. It's a little bit of a complicated diagnosis, and there's a lot of medical controversy about how to name it. <laughs> but that's not important. The important thing is it's a connective tissue disease. And essentially, if you think about connective tissue, it's everywhere in your body, absolutely everywhere. And its main function when we think about connective tissue is probably most people's minds go to like ligaments and tendons, but it is everywhere. But for the ligament and tendons, that's a really uh, easy example of, of how my connective tissue doesn't work. So the best analogy I have is you um, imagine a rubber band and you stretch it out and it goes back to shape. And that's its whole purpose, right? Is to be stretchy and then go back to a smaller shape. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's how ligaments and tendons work to help us move our bodies around more efficiently um, and save your muscles from, from having to do too much so they don't run out of energy. But 
in connective tissue disorders, it's kind of like you have an old rubber band that you found at the bottom of the drawer and you stretch it out and it stays stretched out. (laughs) Yeah. So that's sort of what my ligaments and tendons do. They don't kind of rebound very well. They stay stretched out. And when they overstretch, they stay overstretched. Um, And so people with connective tissue disorders uh, have a lot of dislocations pretty regularly. And uh, there's something called subluxation, which is almost a dislocation, but not quite like something goes out of place, but not fully out of socket and then goes back. Um, And so I have those regularly, multiple times a day. (laughs) Um, Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's a fairly painful condition. The hypermobile varieties of EDS are supposedly some of the most painful, although they're the least dangerous. So there are other forms of EDS that affect the blood vessels a lot more severely, and they are they are quite dangerous. My form is not necessarily life-threatening. It's just very complicated and very painful. So there's a lot of other conditions that are linked to it. Um, so like gastroparesis where the digestive system slows down and doesn't quite work right because there's connective tissue there. Um, dysautonomia where your, um, blood return doesn't really work very well because your blood vessels are too stretchy and your autonomic nervous system doesn't quite work very well. Um, so there's a whole bunch of these, these other conditions that go along with it. And, um, so it's a pretty like body-wide <laughs> systemic uh, issue. We'll talk uh, about your service dog a little later, uh, Basil. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So that's, I mean, that's an important thing that we just discussed, um, advocacy for accessibility and science. Um, there's something else in your, uh, in, your, in, your, in your tool chest about uh, diversity uh, committee for the Society of Vertebrates. Uh, did I get that right? It's the Society for Vertebrate of Vertebrate Paleontology. Oh, yeah. so the Diversity Committee for the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology. Yeah. Um, could you talk about that really briefly? Sure. Yeah. So when I started um, trying to figure out how to be more of an advocate for myself and for other disabled people in STEM and academia, uh, one of the first things I did was reach out to SVP, that's the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, because that's the professional committee for vertebrate paleontologists in North America. It's our main professional committee, um, or sorry, professional like society. And uh, we have annual meetings where we get together and we share our research with each other and we do like a lot of networking. Uh, and it's just a really important hub for North American vertebrate paleontologists. Uh, so I reached out and said, hey, I know you all have a diversity committee. It, it, they started doing uh, diversity events in, I think, around 2018. Um, but a lot of it had been uh, kind of centered around gender diversity and I hadn't seen much about uh, disability yet. And so I figured I might as well just <laughs> dive right in if I wanted to do some advocacy. So I sort of pitched to them like I, you know, I've been a member of the society for uh, probably a decade at this point. And um, I am now, you know, a PhD candidate dealing with these disabilities and trying to navigate field science. And I think I could possibly be a helpful voice on the diversity committee. So they invited me on and it's been great. We have done some workshops uh, to highlight the various diverse um, paleontologists that we have in our society, but also to reach out to undergrads and other grad students and early career professionals saying like, 
hey, we're here. There's, uh, you know, disabled people here. And if you want to, you know, have a community within our community, <laughs> reach out. Let's talk about how we can make paleontology more accessible for people with disabilities and chronic illnesses. Because it's not been a part of the conversation until very, very recently. Okay, very cool. Yeah. And ha- how has the response been? It's been great. We actually heard um, a lot. We got a lot of feedback after our workshop on our last annual meeting, which was uh, over Zoom or digital because <laughs> because of the pandemic. Um, but we had a lot of feedback that people were really excited to finally be hearing that there are other chronically ill, there are other disabled paleontologists. Um, and we got enough feedback that I, I'd like to do a follow-up event so we could kind of get together and talk about what sorts of things we've all sort of cobbled together to be able to do field science with these fairly complicated medical uh, issues. Because that's that's something that's very, very hard to find information or advice on. Um, So it'd be good to sort of build that community a bit more so we can help each other. Hmm. I can't imagine because you mentioned you... Man, this would be a whole other conversation, wouldn't it? (laughs) Like you you mentioned you do uh, like dig work. Yeah. And if you have, if you're differently able, that looks very different than somebody that can just traipse about without a single problem as they, you know, go over rugged terrain. It really does. Yeah. And it, it differs based on disability. So mm-hmm. it's also hard to plan for because everybody is fairly different and different chronic illnesses are going to have different accessibility needs. So yeah, for me, I work with an orthotist pretty heavily who that's someone who helps you um, get braces for your body (laughs) so you can move your body around safely um, and, you know, in as safe a way as possible. So I work with an orthotist who thankfully knows quite a lot about Ehlers-Danlos, which is somewhat uncommon. Uh, A lot of them don't necessarily have a lot of experience with that. Uh, So I work with someone who, who knows that and also... Uh, understands my need both professionally and just for my own like mental health and hobby to be outside and do really like dynamic things outside. So hiking is so much more complicated from a bracing perspective than uh, just like walking around on a flat surface. Mm. Um, So she's been great. She's really helped me come up with um, good solutions for like knee braces and ankle foot orthoses and sorts of adaptive equipment so that I can be active and not cause like a major injury while I'm out in the field. A brace for like myself, if I needed one as a teacher, like just walking around the classroom, completely different than a brace to climb up a hill or yeah, it could be. Yeah. It could be. It would depend a lot on like mm. what you're exactly doing with it. But yeah, it's it's hard to translate a brace that you might use in like a city or a classroom to something that you would use. Yeah, outdoors, going up and down hills, and yeah. Um, well, okay. I'm I'm glad I'm glad we had this conversation. That's gonna be great for people that are listening, and it probably translate. It well, not probably. It translates to a whole bunch of other fields with field work, not just paleontology. So yeah, and that's my hope is that that by talking about this stuff, we can sort of normalize the idea that that disabled people, chronically ill people can do uh, these complicated field sciences. We just need accommodations. Hmm. Um, and they may not always be the easiest or um, something that a abled body bodied person might think of. 
But with our input, if we actually are able to give our input, I think a lot of field programs and field sciences can be adapted pretty easily, pretty readily for disabled and chronically ill people. No one's really thought about it before, which is understandable. I had not thought about these things before I was disabled either. But it, it that highlights the importance of, you know, if you look around your field or your activity or your classroom and you don't see disabled people, I think it's really important to to question that and say, well, why? Why aren't there disabled or chronically ill people here? Is it because this isn't accessible for them or is it because we haven't reached out to them? So that's kind of one of the things I'm trying to do is, is get people to think about that a little bit more because if we're not there, it's most likely not because we as disabled people cannot do that thing. It's mostly because we probably haven't either been asked to the table or we haven't been able to uh, access whatever that is because there haven't been accommodations. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really important point. Okay, well, let's switch gears a bit. I'd love to chat with you about your pet story because I think we're going to talk about a very special uh, dog. Yes. <laughs> Um, could you share, could you share a story about uh, a pet story with us or, or talk about ba Basil? <laughs> Absolutely. So Basil is my service dog in training. She's amazing. And she's a little over a year old. She's about 15 months old now. Um, so I think we don't have a ton of stories yet cause we've been in lockdown, <laughs> but when I met Basil might've been the best, the best moment of the last few years. So I met several litters of puppies. It's very difficult to pick a puppy with a temperament to be able to be a service dog. It's very, very hard to be a service dog. Um, most dogs can't really quite do it. And even of the dogs that are trained for service work, a lot of them end up being um, what they call fabulous flunkies, <laughs> where they, they kind of flunk out of service dog school <laughs> and become pets. So I was temperament testing. Uh, a whole bunch of different litters of puppies to see if I could find, you know, the most promising puppy. And I was feeling a little discouraged and I was going out to see the third litter of puppies I was going to test. And I hadn't found a candidate yet out of two full litters of puppies, but I pulled up and went into the breeder's house and met this adorable fluffy <laughs> pile of golden retriever puppies and I asked, okay, what are the calmest ones? That's the first thing. So the breeder helped me figure out which of the, the little fluffy uh, pups was probably the calmest ones. And she sort of put them in a separate little area so I could temperament test them. And so you basically to, to temperament test, you do a bunch of different things with the puppies where you interact with them in different ways to see if they're skittish or if they're really interested in toys or really interested in food or really interested in people, specifically you. <laughs> and you go from there and you can kind of figure out if a puppy is going to be really good for either service work or maybe it'll be really good as like a police dog or maybe it would be a really good like scent detection dog. Um, using these temperament testing methods. Beaker would be a, uh, like if I was a hunter, oh my goodness, Beaker would be like she would not be a good service dog, but, <laughs> but a good, yeah, I can totally, I totally get it. Yes. So yeah. I, didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm just, oh, no, any, right. any, anybody that's thinking, Oh, what about Beaker? Beaker's no, be, no, 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 <laughs> Beaker, 
beaker is not would not be a good service dog at all. Oh, she's so cute though. <laughs> she's a, she's a great dog, you know, awesome. But you know, I can see where you're going with the temperament thing. Sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> oh no worries, no worries. I'm always I'm here for any sort of dog interruptions. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm temperament testing these puppies, and some of them are all right. But I finally get to the last two puppies, and it's a boy and a girl. And I do the temperament testing with them, and they're almost exactly the same in their score. So I have to decide between these adorable, fluffy dogs now, which is like <laughs> a nightmare. <laughs> it is so hard. So I brought in a couple friends, because this is way, this is before COVID. I brought in a couple friends, and we're like playing with different toys and calling at the puppies. And I had my other dog there, Charlie. He's old, he's a retired service dog, actually. And, uh, the puppies responded very differently at this point, this one point. So Basil, her brother's name is Quincy now. So Quincy and Basil are sitting in there and reacting to all these different things that are being kind of put in front of them. And Quincy is really interested in my other dog. He was like really wanting to play with my friends. He wanted to play with all the toys. And Basil kind of looked at each of the things and then brought me a toy. <laughs> she just like comes to me with toys and just sits with me and like curls up in my lap and just wants to play with a toy, but only if I'm the one playing with her with the Aww. toy. Yeah. So that kind of sealed the deal for me. I was like, all right, I guess I'm, I'm, I got to go with this puppy. She's just got my whole heart like right now. <laughs> but that's so true. Like you cannot have a service dog that interacts strongly with other dogs, right? Yeah, they, they have to, or you, you have to train that out of them. Um, exactly, they have to be a hundred percent on you when it's time to work. Yeah, and that was kind of yeah what it came down to. I I thought okay, both of these dogs are going to be great service dogs, but I'm going to go with Basil because she is more interested than me than anything else in the room, and that is really good for her potential to be a service dog. But yeah. I actually I had a feeling Quincy would be an amazing service dog too. And I told the breeder that, and she ended up donating Quincy to autism service dogs here in Toronto. And I'm really excited to say he is actually into his advanced training. Aw, that's yeah. so great. <laughs> so he's going to probably end up graduating and being a service dog too, which just makes my heart like so happy. <laughs> Aw. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So uh, Basil's close to being uh, graduated. Is that yeah. that's where we're at? Okay. She's in her advanced training. I would say she has a little longer to go because of the pandemic. Mm. It's made it very hard to do public training, which is really important. So she's gotten great at her tasks. Um, she actually, she alerts me to my heart rate. My heart rate can go really high, really fast out of nowhere, just as part of the dysautonomia that I have. And uh, she is trained to alert me to that and will actually lay across my lap uh, to bring my heart rate down. It puts pressure on the vessels in your thighs, and that can help bring your heart rate down and regulate your heart rate and blood pressure. Hmm. And then but also in, alerting you that, you know, you should take a break. Exactly. Yeah, she <laughs> lets me know. And uh, that's really important because I can get very dizzy and even potentially faint. Um, oh. So it's good for her. She lets me know well before that's going to happen. So I don't accidentally overdo it and end up ignoring my symptoms and like passing out or falling over. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. See, like on the podcast, I do science art articles about dogs and 
and like the she the basil the, the i think the the current research is that she can smell your stress hormones from your heart racing like it's yeah. just wild isn't it that they can yeah. they can't hear your heart we don't think getting faster but they can smell changes in your chemistry so easily if they're when they know what to look for so exactly it's it's really mind blowing the number of things you can teach a dog to alert to by scent is just um out of this world, I, you know, there's a diabetic alert dogs mm-hmm. that can alert to low blood sugar. Um, they can be trained to alert to blood pressure changes. They can be trained to alert to stress response uh, or tachycardia, just all sorts of things. Yeah. Seizures, all of that. Yeah. So cool. Well, I'm glad that you have Basil with you. And, uh, and once the pandemic's over, uh, you will, it sounds like Basil's going to be going with you into the field, into potentially teaching. Yeah. Uh, maybe be, yeah. By, be, be by your side when you do defend your work. Oh, absolutely. So she already goes to the lab with me and goes oh, okay. into the office with me when I go. I'm very fortunate that the place that I work is um, happy to accept a service dog in training at, with and give it the same rights as a full service dog. Um, okay. Yeah, it's really important that that, um, that is allowed. It's not always on the books in a legal sense, but a lot of places will allow it. Um, because if you don't, it's really hard to train a service dog if you can't get access when they're in training to -hmm. those environments. So yeah, Basil goes to the lab with me. She's learning how to wear her protective equipment. Mm -hmm. So she wears a lab coat and, uh, goggles and even has earmuffs to wear and boots. And she's doing great with all that. That's adorable. So yeah. one, of, uh, one of the things, it's adorable and important. Um, one of the things we always get is like people see Bunsen, especially like he's dressed up in a lab coat and glasses. And I have to tell people he's not a service dog. Um, yeah. When he was little, um, we were told he could potentially be a great service dog. Um, but mm-hmm. he, so we went down that road and then he failed like a couple tests right off the bat. Um, <laughs> So he was one of those flunkies. Um, he was a little too mistrustful of strangers and you don't want a dog to, you know, yeah. you, you want them to, you know, be okay with anybody. And he did not yeah. like, did not like men in hats or hoodies. He thought but, they were sketchy. So, yeah, that was a challenge I had with Charlie for a little bit. He was a pet primarily, but in his, uh, And when I first got diagnosed, I did some service dog training with him just because I didn't have a service dog yet. And I was having a lot of difficulty managing um, the tachycardia. So I trained him to alert to it. But then I had to I had to work a lot harder, actually, on his um, responses to other people because he was uh, fine. He's really, really kind, but he would get a little skittish around uh, the exact same thing as um, Bunsen. So like men in hats was a big thing we had to train through. In Bunsen's defense, uh, when we were, you know, in his young, when he was young, like seven or eight months, there was a guy, because we live in rural Alberta, some <laughs> some drunk guy got onto our property from who knows where, and he was throwing rocks at the shed, just like oh. And he was in a hoodie and he had a hat and I went out there and, you know, he's yelling at him. And then Bunsen was like, well, this guy's no good. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So from in his formative <laughs> years, he's like, oh, anybody that looks like that, they're, they're, they're sketchy. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, so, that can be hard to overcome. Yeah, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is like it takes a special dog to be a service dog. As you as you said, not every dog can be a service dog. So. Yeah, it really does. I would say more more dogs are not able to than yeah. are. <laughs> I would no, I would agree with that 100%. Anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um Beaker's very well trained in in some regards and she's still a really like she's still puppy, right? Mm-hmm. But there's no way she would be a service dog. She's got such a high prey drive. I don't know how you would ever I don't know how you would ever breed that out like train that out of a dog. You'd have to like work hours and hours yeah um, yeah she wants to catch and get things so yeah that can be really tough that's one of those things that the temperament test can help catch mm-hmm. but also you have to train i mean basil's been training since she was eight weeks old mm. like almost all day every day is some form of training or learning for her and uh yeah you have to work really hard on the prey drive really really young <laughs> yeah we didn't do that she was just yeah. cute yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks for sharing your pet story. Um, yeah. The other thing we always ask our guests for is a super fact. And a super Ooh. fact is something you know that might blow people's minds. Do you yeah. have a super fact you could share with us? I absolutely do. So one thing that blows my mind, at least, and hopefully will blow other people's minds, is the fossils that you see in museums may look like rocks. And a lot of times paleontologists talk about them being turned to stone, but most fossils that you see, if it's a fossil bone, you could probably, if you got permission, cut it up on a saw and put it under a microscope and you would most likely be able to see where the bone cells and blood vessels were in that bone because the preservation is so good on those fossils, on most most fossil bones, that you can actually see what the living tissue used to look like. That's wild, but it's still a mineral, right? Like it's yeah. <laughs> what? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So it preserves the like inside a bone stuff. Yeah, it preserves the whole structure inside of the bone. So there's openings where the blood vessels were, there's tiny little holes where the bone cells themselves used to be, and the fiber and arrangement of the bone matrix that uh, that mineral component of that you would have in your bone tissue, the orientation of those fibers is even preserved. All that's happened is it's changed from being the hydroxyapatite mineral that you have in your body, in your living bone, into uh, a mineralized form uh, in the, the actual fossil where it's changed a little bit in composition. But the structure, the way it looks is so similar to what it would look like in life that you can identify those structures just like you would if you looked at a slice of modern bone. That's wild. I didn't know yeah. that. That's yeah. crazy. I love it. That is a super fact. It's pretty cool. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Jade. That's awesome. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> the last section of the podcast interview is a really fun one. We get mm-hmm. to we I ask guests to share something they're passionate about. Um, it could be a cause, a hobby, you wanted to talk a little bit about outdoor recreation and making that accessible. Yeah. So I am an outdoor enthusiast uh, by profession because I do paleontology and I do field work, but I'm also, it's one of my big hobbies is to go out and hike. I used to live in the Western U S which is a lot like where you live, where most of the best things to do are outside. Um, but it can be a real challenge to do that. Um, and it's a lot of the same reasons I was mentioning. It can be difficult to do a STEM or education or academic 
job uh, with disability and chronic illness. And it's because we don't see ourselves in those settings very often. There's not a lot of role models or examples. Um, so one of my big passions right now is uh, learning how <laughs> to get outside, learning about adaptive equipment, and trying to highlight the voices of advocates out there for adaptive outdoor recreation. Um, so that's that's something I'm getting into right now and really exploring how can I get back to the kind of hiking I used to do um, because I haven't been able to for a few years at this point. And it's a, it's a real challenge, but it's another challenge that I'm trying to see as like a puzzle to be solved <laughs> and to get excited about as much as possible. Hmm. So you are, where, where did you do your hiking? Like where, like, um, I'm like, you said you enjoyed hiking before. Mm -hmm. Um, do you hike everywhere or is like a certain place in the world that you've been hiking that you just adore the most? Oh, that's a great question. I try to hike anywhere that I live. That's usually what I'm doing on the weekends is hiking or birding. I'm a really big bird nerd because they're living dinosaurs exactly, after all. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's only fitting that I would love them. Um, so everywhere I live, everywhere I visit, I try to hike or get outside in whatever aspect I can. Right now I'm in a city, so I try to explore the city green space as much as possible. But I uh, probably one of my favorite places... Uh, when I was when I lived in Montana and when I lived in Idaho. So those were both states that just had so much outdoor recreation available, basically right out your back door. <laughs> um, but I would have to say my favorite place is the Sawtooth Wilderness in Idaho. That's where I spent a lot of time um, a few years ago when I was teaching at a university there. And I, I just used to hike in those mountains all the time, and they're absolutely gorgeous. They are, yeah. Idaho, Idaho is a pretty state for sure. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, lots of lots of lakes and mm -hmm. lots of trees. Yeah, yeah. I love the alpine lakes so much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, they're they're a little chilly. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to swim in, <laughs> at least the, at least our al alpine lakes in Alberta. Um, they're yeah, they are in Idaho cold. too. They're pretty yeah, cold. <laughs> pretty cold. Yeah, it's not that far south. Not that far, much farther south, I guess. Yeah, pretty chilly. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Well, you know, that's that's great. Um, we're kind of at the end. We're at the, let's start that again. We're at the end of the interview. Uh, where can people find you on social media or, or accounts to follow? Oh, uh, yeah. So I mostly do my advocacy and outreach through Basil's uh, social media sites. So she is at Service Pup Basil um, on Instagram and Twitter. I also have a personal account where I talk about these issues, but mostly uh, like in a I'm talking more to the disabled community and a little bit less um, sort of education about disability on my own personal uh, social media, but you can find out more about things that I'm dealing with or about my science as well. Uh, I'm at O is for Overaptor. <laughs> it. uh, it's a little hard to, to spell, but O is for Overaptor. And that's on Twitter and Instagram too, but you'll see a, a, a mix of a whole bunch of things on there. It's like hiking and dog stuff and cooking and my various diseases and sometimes fossils when I can actually get into a museum. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
I'll make sure those links are in the show notes. So there'll be hyperlinks. People can just click them and they're one click away. Great. I also have a website um, and I do share some of my research and I, the links to uh, some of the outreach that I've done recently there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will, I have posted links from, I did a kid's show recently with the Royal Ontario Museum where Basil and I appeared and talked about service dogs. You can find a link to that. And wow. also the nature article that, um, Joey Ramp and I, and a few other, I think three other service dog handlers were interviewed for a nature feature just, a, about a month ago came out. Mm-hmm. So that's on there as well. So the website is. O is for overactor.wordpress.com. Well, it's been my pleasure to talk to you today. And and just thank you so much for giving up your time to chat with us about dinosaurs and service dogs and uh, like making things accessible and thinking about thinking about life differently if you don't have disabilities. Um, yeah. That def- so definitely made me think too. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's, that's what I aim, aim to do is make people think a little bit about these things and consider how we can uh, be more inclusive and, and consider the disabi- disability community when we're talking about our, our DEI <laughs> initiatives and goals. But <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. It was really, really great to talk to you. No problem. So O is for Ovoraptor. Yep. E is for empathy. So. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Take care of yourself. Um, I'm so excited to see what happens in the future and also from your your work with advocacy there. Um, we'll definitely keep in touch through 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 our dog account that uh, promotes, <laughs> promotes science. So Excellent. Thank you. It's time for a Woo or Wow on the Science Podcast, and I have patron Ben Rathert back today. How are you doing today, Ben? Doing all right. How about you? I'm good. We were just chatting before that um, your family is getting all, themselves all immunized against COVID. That's amazing. Good job. Yes, we definitely want to help do our part to bring this all down as much and as quickly as possible. So we're uh, almost 100%. Just got one more of us needing that second shot and we'll be, we'll be in the books. Cool. That's, that's exciting. The same for us, for our family too. Um, is there something your family is going to be able to, that you've been missing doing? Uh, one thing I'm looking forward to is the uh, aquarium. Uh, oh, yeah. For a little bit of extra on top of your ticket price, you can actually go behind the scenes and hang out with the penguins. Oh, cool. And they are my favorite animals. So I definitely, <laughs> definitely want to do that. I found out about that like last year, right before coronavirus hit. And I was getting excited. To, Which know, aquarium is this, Ben? The Atlanta Aquarium. Oh, neat. I love penguins too. The Calgary Zoo, which is the city near our town, they have a penguin exhibit and you walk down and they're like really close to you. And there's signs saying, do not touch the penguins because they're so close. You could just reach out, reach out and pet them. And I was, I was going to pet one and I re and I caught, they got, I got in trouble. But um, even though I knew I wasn't supposed to touch them, it was right beside me. And I was like, it's a penguin. And I went to go touch it. And then they're like, no, don't touch it. And I was like, ah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Oh man, they would uh, not like me then because I would go <laughs> I, I would go in by myself and leave with my strange waddling son in a trench coat and hat. <laughs> I know. All of a sudden, you've got one in your bathtub, and you're there on the phone. Please bring back our penguin. <laughs> I I don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. <laughs> it's my son. How dare? How dare you, sir? There you go. Very good. <laughs> All right, so on We're Wild this week, Ben, it's all about velociraptors. Excellent. 
Right. I think we talked previously that you, you're you a bit of a fan of the dinosaurs. I am. I do enjoy dinosaurs. And I yeah. uh, think we did have a uh, slightly lengthy discussion about Jurassic Park and how awesome it, it still is because it still mm. holds up today. Right. So I seem to remember this and I, some of this, if you know a little bit about Jurassic Park, which you do, it might help you. Okay. Okay. Or it might hurt you. I don't know. We'll well, this would be the first time that my knowledge of Jurassic Park will have helped me. So, uh, <laughs> okay. So to recap, I'm going to read three statements. Two of them are fake. One of them is true. And Ben, you have to find the true statement. Okay. All right. Statement one. The Velociraptor could run upwards of 30 to 40 kilometers per hour and easily outrun a human. Okay, that, that's okay. now, now I've got to do my Canadian to uh, U.S. Oh, right. Conversion. Uh, <laughs> like, so and, and that's like 18 to 25 miles an hour. Okay. All right, let's right. see what the next one is then. Okay, all right. Statement two. There is no evidence... That velociraptors hunted in packs. I'm pretty confident that feels like it's false. <laughs> but then at the same time, like I know that you're you're a very very tricky person, so you're <laughs> trying to throw me off. Okay. All right, ready for statement three? <laughs> Let's try statement three. Statement three. The velociraptor's skin was a smooth lizard texture, which could be multiple different shades as depicted in Jurassic Park. That one I am feeling pretty confident is false. Since uh, there's the uh, the whole feathered thing that we've kind of learned about, but then that doesn't necessarily mean they were completely feathered. It would be true. See, you're do- trying to trick me. <laughs> uh, okay, so I, mean, I feel like they definitely could run fast. Like that definitely seems like it definitely seems like a thing that they could wouldn't. They definitely should run fast. Now I'm thinking Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote. Um, yeah, let's let's go with number one. I feel very confident saying uh, number one is is wow. It's a true statement. They can they can do some zoomies. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> so they could probably outrun a uh, beakering beaker. I, I I don't know, man. I mean, beakering beakers like its own. Oh yeah, she type can of, type of speed she's measurement. So fast, she's like, so fast now. <laughs> I think isn't beakering an actual unit? It, it should to. be. It should be a unit of speed. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, first statement. Final answer. The final speed answer. of the Velociraptor. Yes. Final answer. Okay, so let's take a look at the last statement. You were a little, uh, you were pretty, you smelt some trickiness in that last one, and you're correct. Um, if we take a look at uh, what we know about their structure, velociraptors definitely were covered in feathers, and they had quill knobs, just like today's birds, where their bone on their bones, where feathers would have attached. So there is like um, indisputable evidence that the velociraptors were feathered. So the Jurassic Park velociraptors should have had feathers on them. Yes, excellent. That would have made them very fancy too, though. It would have. It would have been cool, I think. Anyways, <laughs> maybe the at the time, the CGI budget wasn't there. <laughs> maybe. Well, you know, maybe they could go back. Uh, I know oh. 
I know remastering movies and stuff or or a a thing. So maybe Steven Spielberg can go back, put some fancy feathers on those guys. Yeah. Take, I get some paleontologists with them to to make everything as accurate as possible. (laughs) Okay. So we've got two statements left. We have the speed of the Velociraptor and the hunting of the Velociraptor. Which statement do you want to hear first? Uh, Let's hear about their speed. Okay. So if this statement is true, you win. But if this statement is woo, no go. The Velociraptor could run upwards of 30 kilometers to 40 kilometers an hour. That's like 18 to 25 miles an hour. That statement is, that statement's false. That one's not Ah. correct. Sorry, Ben. The Velociraptor in Jurassic Park was uh, uh, incorrectly portrayed as being human-sized, when in fact they are small. They're about the size of a turkey. So their short little legs would not be able to make them run very fast. The Velociraptor in the Jurassic Park was modeled after the Utah Raptor, which is that size, um, but looks a little different. So Steven Spielberg did not want to have turkey-sized creatures uh, being the menace of the movie. He lied to me. Why? I know. It's, it, that's a, it's a big shocker. Um, so statement two is correct. While they are depicted in Jurassic Park as hunting in packs, there's no evidence of them hunting in packs. It's not to say that they couldn't hunt in packs, but of all of the specimens that have been found, they have all been found to be totally solitary individuals, not found in groups. They're just not looking to the bushes off to the left. That's where... (laughs) No, can you imagine like tomorrow they find a whole bunch of them? You'll be like, you'll be emailing me and say like, ah, see, ah, <laughs> I was right. I gotta, I gotta find a paleontologist to send, send you an email real quick. So the Velociraptor size, that's the other thing that they will have to retcon if they ever go back and, um, make them smaller. I don't know if it'd be as terrifying and I don't think the Velociraptor could reach the door handle if it was the size of a turkey. I don't know. Have you like squirt off against the turkey. I mean, I haven't. This is true. They are not small. I have heard that they are quite vicious for. I've squared off against the Canada goose. And I'll tell you, there's no way I'm doing that again. No, no, no. (laughs) I I don't, I see them fly by and I see them hang out in fields down here uh, every once in a while. And I just, you know, kind of politely nod. (laughs) You leave them be. Yes. Yes. Well, you're a good sport, Ben. Wow is always tough because I'm tricky and I have the answers. Um, so we'll have to we'll have to talk to the patrons about having me on the hot seat and you guys come up with the clues one time. Oh man, that'd be great. Okay, I'll, I'll get I'll organize it for uh, for when school's out sometime in July. Yeah, yeah that'd be great. Okay, cool. Stumper, well, thanks stumper. again. And you know what? Just just your con- you can your continued support as a patron um, makes a big deal. Uh, we were talking before about the beaker stuffy. So uh, the patrons got a first look at that and gave us our feedback. Same thing with the Bunsen stuffy. So your help and your support has shaped some of the really cool ideas that's come out with content. So thank you. You're welcome. I'm always happy to support the content you're putting out. The podcast is great and it's always, always good to have some fun entertainment, <laughs> learn something as well, which I always do on Wooer Wow. So. <laughs> I'm sorry. Today was a loss. I think I have missed three of my five. If I'm Ooh, counting correctly. okay, so we'll have to get you to fifty percent next time. Well, we'll try. We'll see, <laughs> as long as it's not about uh, Steven Spielberg lying to me as a child, then I think we'll be okay. <laughs> 
All right. Well, it was really good to catch up with you. Uh, thanks for being a guest on Wu or Wow and take care of yourself down there. Well, thanks for having me again. And you guys stay safe and have fun up north. Okay. It's time for story time with me, Adam. All right. So if you don't know what story time is, story time is when we talk about stories that would have happened within the past one or two weeks. So I will start. My story is about Beaker. And if you don't know, Beaker is in her cone and it's kind of annoying because she's stabby stabby. Um, because she, like, runs into your shins with her cone and then digs into your skin. But that's not what I'm going to talk about. What I'm going to talk about is how she, um, jumped onto the couch and then started licking my face just constantly. And then her cone was jamming me in the neck and jamming me in the forehead. And it was very uncomfortable. But Beaker was just like, hi, hi, I I lick you. I licky licky, I lick licky sticky Beaker. That's what was going on. Um, yeah. She's so happy. She was so happy. She was so licky and happy. But yeah, that's my story. Bit of a a short one, as always. Dad, do you have a story? We got the pictures of the Beaker Stuffy prototype. It's almost done. We have to do some tweaks. And it is adorable. The amount of people that that like the picture on Twitter is like thousands. And it got so many retweets. So that's great. That's great for us to know that there is a demand for the Stuffy. Um, I think they really captured the essence of her face. And the glasses and the lab coat are so cute. A lot of people were asking about accessories. Like, does she could she come with a little Vultures of Parliament t-shirt? Or could she come with, uh, you know, like her mohawk from Vultures of Parliament or a moose leg? And the answer is no. <laughs> it's been a bit of a challenge to just get her to come with safety glasses. So I think we're not going to... Uh, we're, we're not going to push our luck too much, and we're just going to keep it simple. Um, it's a long process making a stuffy, and once we okay the prototype, then it goes into production. So you won't be able to see it to purchase it for a while, um, but I, might, I think in the, in the ad for this podcast, I'll have a picture of it. It's so cute. That's my story. Very exciting on the, on the development end for us. Yeah, the Beaker Stuffy was originally planned to have interchangeable costumes, but that not by, might not be a thing. All right, Mom, do you have a story? I sure do. So my story starts a few days ago when Beaker decided that she was going to lick her paw raw. Lick, 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 bite, bite, chew, chew. And so now she is wearing a cone. Now this also coincides to Bunsen's cone wearing from the porcupine uh, quill removal surgery. So now I have two dogs wearing cones all day with me here at home. Tell them what Bunsen does to you on the fridge. It doesn't matter. It's not the fridge. It's anywhere. I stand up and I move and he's like, oh, hey, I'm going to snowplow you into wherever you are. So if you're up against walls, yeah, against the fridge, against the wall, shovel with his snowplow. And I'm thinking, what the heck are you doing, buddy? Puppy, puppy, please stop. And he's like, I'm just going to shove you. I'm shovey. I'm Mr. Shovey. Rub me. Rub me. That's Bunsen. Uh, anyway, so now Beaker is wearing a cone and, um, you know that she is very prey driven, uh, and Bunsen's cone is a little bit more, hmm, transparent. So the light shines through it and she has to chase the light that is flitting about on the floor. 
and she goes round and around and around. Uh, and so that's always entertaining. And now, now they're, now she's decided that she can somehow worm her cone into his cone. And so it's like she, I don't know, because it's a little bit smaller at the bell. She can just get it into his cone and then nibble at his neck. And he's, and it's just like, it's like the babushka doll. It's like the matushka dolls. Oh, what? What are they called? Matushka dolls. Babushka. Not babushka. But sometimes called babushka. Babushka means grandma. But it's matushka. Matushka. Yeah. The nesting dolls is what Jason. Nesting dolls. The nesting dolls is what Jason's trying to talk about. I love them. They are one of my favorite things. That's my story. But as Adam closes, he has some very exciting news that he received in the mail today that he can share with you. Makushla dolls. Okay, so my news is that I got a letter today, and uh, it was from the city of Red Deer, where we live, because um, I guess the people know that we live in Red Deer now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I got a letter. I'm like, oh, is this going to be like my T4 tax returns? You made no money, man. I make no money. Um, but yeah, I got a T4 one year. It was like a tax. It was like a tax paper. Oh. Yeah, one year. So I thought, oh, it might be happening again, even though I have no income. Um, nope. It was a letter from the mayor being like, hey, you have been nominated for an award for the mayor's award for Royals, my marching band. And, uh, well, not, not nominated, but you have got a award. Yeah, you won it. I won it. I won the mayor's award, which is like the, the um, uh, making the community a better place award. Um, for the Royals. So I get a plaque and a pin, and that's pretty cool. And a sword. No, I don't get a sword. Oh. No, no sword. You get money? Nope, no money. Okay. You think the city it's of... It's still pretty cool. It is still pretty cool, but the city of Red Deer does not have any money to give me. They don't have enough money for basically anything. You get a high five from the mayor. I don't get a high five from the mayor. I'll give you a high five. Okay. I get a high five from my dad. Um... <laughs> But yeah, I got Mayor's Award, and it's pretty cool. The mayor actually kind of spoke to me directly. It was like, in, in the letter, she's like, I wish I could be giving you the award. And I was like, cool, thanks, Taravir. <laughs> anyway, that is my section of the podcast, Story Time. Hopefully, uh, I get to see you guys next time. Bye-bye. That's the end of another Science Podcast episode. Thanks for coming back week after week to listen to us. Special thanks to Jade Simon, who talked to us this week about paleontology and accessibility we'd also like to give a special shout out to our top tier patrons on patreon without their support we wouldn't be able to do what we do and the patreon page is almost at 100 patrons crazy thank you so much take it away chris nate stephenson debbie anderson courtney proven renee hardy mary raider shelby leggett dan fry Mary Coos, Katia Lynch, Marianne McNally, Andrea Persons, Elizabeth Bourgeois, Karen Beth St. George, Bianca Hyde, Lisa Swartz, Catherine Jordan, Donna Craig, Lila Ashier, Jody Ogren, Liz Button, Kathy Zerker, and Ben Rathert. Let's close with the dog's motto for science, empathy, and cuteness. Uh-huh.